following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. More than likely, you have found yourself in a situation of... uh maybe a spousal argument or intense disagreement. And the conversation can go something like this. Um, and, and that would be, uh, well, who are you to say something about that? Look what you do. Or uh, you're acting just like your mother. That one's very dangerous. Or, or perhaps in the midst of the conversation, there's simply words are twisted around. And you said something like, Well, I really wish we could have dinner every evening at 5 o'clock. And the response is, you accuse me of never having dinner ready on time. Now, we all do that out of our sinful fragility. We will turn an argument back on the other person by accusing them of something, like the iron calling the skeleton black, or we'll simply twist their words to our own advantage. Now, what we do in our personal relationships is also a tactic that is used by those who teach error. The first is called an argument ad hominem against the man. Not dealing with the person's arguments because you can't answer them from Scripture, but attacking the person. And the other is twisting the words of Scripture in order to suit the purposes of the one who's teaching error. These two tactics have been used by those who teach error really throughout the history of the church. And these two tactics we see this morning in Eliphaz's speech. As we begin to look at this speech, and this begins the second cycle of speeches starting here in chapter 15. Job just concluded with one of his longer speeches in 12 uh, through 14 uh, in which he has uh, borne witness that God does not always punish the wicked in this life. He actually demonstrates that from general revelation. He has a beautiful statement about the wisdom and, and the sovereignty, the power of God. And then he appeals to God for vindication. He knows that he's not guilty of the things of which he's accused. But he doesn't know why he's suffering. And so he actually asks for his day in court. He boldly even though he realizes God would slay him, uh, ask for an audience. And then, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 14, uh, in his affliction, he teaches us, and we use this at the beginning of the new year, to meditate on certain things. One is the the brevity of life with its turmoil. Second is the certainty of death and irreversibility. The third is the hope of eternal life. But the fourth the folly of self-redemption. So Job has completed now the first cycle. We come to Eliphaz. But before we look at these words, let me remind you that we're looking at wisdom literature. And God has reasons in extending all of these dialogues. They're not simply there for entertainment like the uh, Iliad or the Odyssey. No, the wisdom literature is to shape our thinking. And The speeches of the friends, as we've already seen, have much truth in them, but they also show us how truth can be abused or or perverted, that we might not make the same mistakes that they make, and that Job's faith through this process grows and prospers, and God is teaching us 
uh, much of what he does in the life of one of his saints through affliction and trial. So in Eliphaz's speech, what, what I'm trying to do this morning is simply show you two principles that are there. Principles that we get out of Scripture, out of the wisdom literature. And the first is, uh, are two things about the, the tactics of those who teach error. One is they will argue ad hominem. They will attack a person. They're not going to deal with your arguments. They're going to attack you. And second is they're going to twist Scripture language to suit their own purposes. So what's the two things that are going on here? That the errorist, when he cannot answer your exegesis, resorts to ad hominem arguments and twisting Scripture. So we see in the first few verses, 1 through 13, that the errorist, or 1 through 12, um, one, in the wrong chapter, 1 through 16, the errorist argues in an ad hominem way against Job. He accuses Job of four things. He accuses him of speaking uselessly to no profit. He accuses him of uh, speaking impiously and destroying piety. He accuses him of great arrogance. And he accuses him of self-righteousness. That's how we'll unpack these words. So first, he accuses Job simply of speaking useless, even harmful words in the first three verses. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, responded. It's merely the connection we have introduction of each speech. But what does he say? Verses 2 and 3. Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with east wind? Should he argue with useless talk or with words which are not profitable? Now this is the third time that uh, Job's friends have accused him of being wordy. Bildad does so in chapter 8. How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth will be a mighty wind? And then um, Zophar rebukes Job, shall a multitude of words go unanswered in verse 11, and a talkative man be acquitted. And now Eliphaz joins the chorus, although he intensifies these things. Now, in Eliphaz's first speech to Job, he was somewhat courteous and gracious, but now he's angry, and kind of the veil has dropped down. And so he not only accuses Job of, of simply trying to hide behind words, but he actually accuses Job of speaking words that uh, are filled with east wind. The belly is filled with east wind. Now the east wind is the hot wind that blows across the desert. It's the east wind that destroyed Job's, uh, Jonah's gourd in Jonah chapter 4. And so he said your speech is like the east wind. There's, there's nothing good in it. There's nothing profitable um, in your speech. And really should a wise man uh, have such windy knowledge, such an expression of the pretense of wisdom. Verse 3, should he argue with useless talk or with words which are not profitable? And Job has spoken some words which are not profitable. And God will deal with Job about that. But Job has spoken much that is true. The problem is Job will not concede to their accusations that he is a gross hypocrite. And part of, of the words that he's spoken that are unprofitable simply out of his um, anguish of knowing that he is, uh, relatively speaking, an innocent man, one of whom God has said that he's blameless and upright and fears God and turns away from evil. Um, and so he has continued to push back. But where he overspoke himself, what Eliphaz could do is say, let me show you uh, where you've spoken wrong. Let me help you here. But no, he simply attacks him as one whose words are like the east wind. 
hot and destructive. And so Job's arguments that they're not trying to answer. They can't answer it, you see. Job's arguments, because he just has proven to them that in this life God at times blesses the wicked and uh, the righteous suffer. They can't answer that from their presuppositions. And so he simply attacks Job's words as being useless. But then it gets worse. He actually attacks Job's words as promoting impiety in verses 4 through 6. Indeed, you do away with reverence and hinder meditation before God. For your guilt teaches your mouth, and you choose the language of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I, and your lips testify against you. So the accusation in verse 4 is that Job's speech, speeches, have done away with the proper fear of God, have cut away the foundation of reverence, actually hindered uh, a pious life, meditation, a, a religious life. And, and why does he say that? Because, for you're speaking out of guilt. You choose the language of the deceitful. So, but as Job says, I'm not guilty of the things of which you accuse me. He's saying, of course you're guilty because you wouldn't suffer this way if you weren't guilty. And so guilt is causing you to say, I'm not guilty. Guilt is causing you to use language of deceit in order to fool us. But in fact, your own mouth condemns you, not I. Your own lips testify against you. You see, again, he can't answer the arguments of, of revelation as the men had it in their day, uh, what Job has said. And so he simply will accuse him of hindering piety by claiming that God is not punishing him because of gross sin. Now, perhaps the second thing is at work here as well. Eliphaz would think, because of his concept of God's retributive justice, that God judges all evil in this life. And God will bring suffering upon the righteous and the innocent. He probably is thinking that that very uh, principle will do away with piety, because why would men serve God? Why will they fear God? If they're not going to be judged for their irreverence in this life. And again, you see the legalistic approach to serving God. That's what is underlying this accusation against Job, who loved God. Language is full of fear, reverence of God. He communed with God. He walked with God. He talks about his own prayer being accepted by God. Now, the third accusation is that uh, Job is arrogant. And there's two grounds for this. In the first place, he's claimed to be as wise as they are. And second, he has not accepted their words of consolation. So verses 7 through 10, he's attacking Job for saying he had wisdom. Were you the first man to be born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that we do not? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us older than your father. So here Eliphaz is saying, Job, you're a Johnny come lately. We are old men, older men, and because of our age, we have much more wisdom than you do. But Job has said that I'm as wise as you are. That's how he begins that long speech in chapter 12. Truly, then you're the people, and with you wisdom will die. But I have intelligence as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? 
but that insulted them because he didn't agree with them. He didn't accept their propositions about God's retributive justice and only the wicked suffer uh, as Job has suffered in this life. And so he simply attacks him with sarcasm. You're the first man to be born. Are you as old as the hills? Do you hear the secret counsel of God? Well, yes, we'll see later uh, that Job heard as much as they did of the secret counsel of God. And Job didn't limit wisdom to himself. He simply said, I'm as wise as you are. And so they couldn't accept that. They couldn't let his wisdom stand on. So simply attack him as being wrong for saying that he's wisdom. Now, it's very true that uh, a godly man or woman, as they grow um, in years, should grow in wisdom. If they're in the Word of God and they're walking with God, they're going to grow in wisdom. And wisdom does lie, as Proverbs says, uh, with the hoary head. But remember what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. That he was wiser than his enemies and his teachers and the elders. And why? Because he had delved deeply into the word of God and communed with God. Now, praise God for the years, but it's the years you have in the word of God. Take advantage then of the time you have. Cultivate the piety that comes with the years of meditating and studying the word of God. For therein is true wisdom. But simply to be older does not make one necessarily wiser. And it's very important that we understand that. Only the Spirit of God through scriptures will make us wise. Now, the second way that Job uh, was arrogant is he didn't accept their counsel. He said he was as wise as they were. But notice then in 11 through 13. Are the constellations of God too small for you? Even the word spoken gently with you. Why does your heart carry you away? Why do your eyes flash that you should turn a spirit against God and allow such words to go out of your mouth? What were these gentle words of comfort? Job, if you'll but repent, God then will restore all of your riches and all of your prosperity. But there's no comfort in those words for the man who knows he's walked with God uprightly. He can't respond to that. That for him was no comfort. And that's why he responds in the way that he does. And yes, he probably was angry. His heart carried him away. His eyes did flash with anger because he's frustrated. They're offering him no hope. They've offered him no explanation. They simply accuse him of acting against God by saying, I'm not being punished because of gross sin. And so they accuse him of useless speech, of impious speech, of arrogant speech. And then in verses 14 through 16, Eliphaz accuses him of being self-righteous. Now that's the pot calling the kettle black. But anyway, what is man that he should be pure? Or he who was born of a woman that he should be righteous? Behold, he, God, puts no trust in his holy ones. And the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. Now Eliphaz, you could say, was uh, the doctor of total depravity. He really grasped properly total depravity. He's, in his very first speech in chapter 4, 
he talks about the depravity of man. No one can be righteous in the sight of God because God alone is holy and pure. And he repeats that here is uh, that no man should consider himself pure. Um, who's born of a woman that he should be righteous? And here he's getting to the fact that all of us are born dead in our sins and trespasses. We have the guilt of Adam's first sin. We have the loss of, of righteousness. We have a corrupt nature and all the sins that come forth from that. Um, that's who we are. And Eliphaz is exactly right. But see, Job has made the same kind of expressions about depravity. Job would agree with 100% with what's said of here. With, in fact, now he illustrates this. Behold, pay attention. God puts no trust in his holy ones, his angels, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. And this is that remarkable, and Eliphaz uses this in chapter 4 as well, way of, of demonstrating the absolute holiness of God. Even holy angels who have not sinned, God doesn't put his trust in them. His, his righteousness is infinite. And theirs is finite, even without sin. If God did not sustain them in their righteousness, they would also fall away. If God did not sustain us in our standing in Christ, we also would fall away. But blessed be his name, he does sustain us. But this helps us to understand the, the awful holiness of God. Even holy angels are not pure in his sight. Holy heaven creating a creature is not pure in his sight. Well, he argues in from the way to the less, how much less one who is detestable and corrupt man who drinks iniquity like water. Now, he doesn't say Job, but obviously all this is directed at Job. Who do you think you are, Job? You are a detestable and corrupt creature. You gulp down sin as one thirsty man would gulp down water. Now, again, he misunderstands the whole nature of justification, which he has asserted the need of, the fact that one can be relatively righteous in the sight of God, and that Job himself was, I'll remind you again, blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. So when Job confesses his innocence, it's not an innocence from sin. He confesses sin. It's innocence of that of which they're accusing him. And thus, Eliphaz is saying, your speech is really just speech of a self-righteous man. You're trusting yourself. You are exalting yourself. So you see these four arguments ad hominem that Eliphaz uses against Job. Job's speech, they don't try to answer his arguments. His speech is useless and impious and arrogant and self-righteous. Rather than dealing with what he said or correcting arguments that he has made on the basis of revelation. They simply attack the man. As I said, we must be careful because we do this in just everyday disagreements. And we need to guard our tongues, particularly in our marital relationships, that we don't attack the person. All that does is destroy the confidence and trust and tenderness of marriage. Let us also recognize that this is a universal uh, activity of Satan. Of course, the epitome of it is against our Savior himself. Ha! Huh. Who is he? He is from Nazareth. No good things come out of Nazareth. He's a Sabbath breaker. He is a wine-bibber. He is a glutton. He is a blasphemer. See, they can't deal with really who he is. 
They can't deal that he's fulfilling the testimony of Scripture, of God himself. They can't deal with the signs and miracles. I always marvel when I read the Gospels. Uh, he's never accused of being a fraud. In fact, many of their traps set for him are premised upon the fact that he can heal the arm of a lame man on the Sabbath in the synagogue. No, they knew. Uh, but they refused to deal with that which God showed them. And they attacked the man. Well, this is, continues to be a tactic of Satan. And so we sell someone that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. And the response is, that's arrogant. We say that Islam is a religion that is um, destructive and false. And we'll be told, that's intolerant. We'll say that Roman Catholicism uh, denies the true gospel. And we're told, you're bigoted. We say that homosexuality is a perversion of God's created order. And we're told we are simply hateful and insensitive. So, you probably have already experienced this. But, but be aware, this is how people in the world are going to respond to you when you assert truth. Now, when we assert truth, we must not do so arrogantly and self-righteously. We don't say with puffed up chest these things that I just quoted. No, we say them with humility. But we must say them. And as we say them, then we know that we will be attacked. It also teaches us the importance of maintaining uh, a pure conscience. Because you know, sometimes those attacks can get awfully close to home. And if your conscience is not clean in the sight of God, then Satan can silence you in that way as well. But it's also a theological tactic to attack the person and not the man. A few years ago when I was uh, involved in the controversy in our denomination over the doctrine of justification and acceptance with God, I got an anonymous uh, letter or email from California. And it accused me of being the self-appointed czar of orthodoxy. Well, I added that to my eminent list of titles. But there was nothing in that letter dealt with any arguments that I brought forth. You see, it was merely an attack on the person. So beware that these things have and will occur as long as we're in this sinful age. Well, second, in the longer portion of the chapter, is not only does the um, false teacher resort to ad hominem arguments, but the false teacher resorts to twisting uh, the revelation of God. And that's what Eliphaz does in the remainder of the chapter in verse 17 through 35. He lays the foundation of his presupposition that only the wicked suffer grievously in this life in verses 17 through 19. I will tell you, listen to me, and what I've seen I will also declare. What wise men have told and have not concealed from their fathers to whom alone the land was given and no alien passed among them. We said that Job has no wisdom. He now asserts once again the foundation of what he's going to say. And the foundation of what he's going to say is true. It's based upon a revelation from God that has been received by the fathers and passed on. So he says that uh, uh, I'll tell you what I've seen and I will declare that. Now, we know he has seen a vision. And Job has seen visions, and these are revelations from God. We know that he, as Eliphaz, the godly man, has observed the ways of God. But that is consistent with what has been passed on through the generations. Before Scripture was given, God preserved truth. The truth went from Noah and Shem and Japheth to Abraham 
and down through uh, God's faithful people. So the wise men, those men who received God's truth, revealed it. They revealed it uh, to the fathers and those who would be the fathers. Um, and, and notice that how God protected the truth. To whom alone the Lamb was given. And this is a reference to the land of the East where all these men lived. It seemed to be the depository of true religion at this point. Abraham was in a sense an exception. Um, the children of Israel are probably now down in Egypt. But the land of the East, uh, the land of these men, the land that was known for great wisdom, the, the land was given to the pious and the righteous with God's truth. And no alien passed among them. That simply means that um, uh, there was no errorist here. There was no unorthodox person uh, in our midst. And so he's asserting something that's very true. And that God has preserved his truth. Even before scripture was written, God preserved his truth. He kept it for the church. It passed on from generation to generation. And that is a proper claim. But you see, it's on the basis that we are the recipients of revelation... That Eliphaz and his friends have come to the conclusion, and I know this is repetitive, but that only the gross sinner suffers as Job is suffering. So now, he proves that both from the fear of the wicked and the fate of the wicked. First, he proves it from the fear of the wicked, verses 20 to 24. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days, and number of the years stored up for the ruthless Sounds of terror are in his ears, while at peace the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from darkness. He's destined for the sword. He wanders about for food, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is at hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They overpower him like a king ready for the attack. The main concept of the fear of the wicked in this life is terrors of a wicked, guilty conscience. And so, the wicked writhes in pain all his days, being plagued by his conscience, according to Eliphaz. The days are numbered, they're stored up for him. And his conscience is but the sound of terror in his ears. And he's paranoid. We saw this before about a guilty conscience. He's paranoid. While at peace, the destroyer comes upon him. And this is what he fears. He's hopeless. His conscience makes him hopeless. He does not believe that he'll return from darkness. He's bound up for the judgment of God. He's destined for death, for the sword. Um, his life is uncertain. He, he wanders about for food. Where is it? He knows that a day of darkness, death, judgment is at hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They overpower him like a king ready for the attack. Now this is a very good and graphic description of the terrors of conscience. And God wants you to understand um, uh, the awfulness of a condemning conscience. Now, you boys and girls have had times when you've done something wrong and you began really to feel badly about it and you felt so badly you went and confessed to your parents. Now, that was the work of your conscience. And you remember how awful you felt simply under that in a sense, minor disobedience, and your conscience plagued you. Well, some of us have been plagued by much worse consciences. You know something of the dread and terror of a guilty conscience. And what Eliphaz is saying is true, on the one hand, that God does plague the wicked with a guilty conscience. 
But it's not always true, you see. It's not always true. Uh, the wicked can put his conscience to sleep. In fact, God allows the wicked to harden himself and to tame his conscience. He can go through life not living with dread and terror and hopelessness and, and uh, uh, inevitability of that which lies before him. Uh, and, and that's where he goes astray. Now see, Job has talked about terrors. But they're not terrors of conscience. His conscience is clear. That's part of his problem. But his terrors are this God who was his friend has become his enemy. Who's filled his life with nightmares and uh, awful dread and darkness. And the darkness that Job fears here is the darkness of the absence of God. And so Eliphaz says because he's had that he must be a guilty man. And this in fact is the state of the guilty always in this life. Now we know that's not true. It will be true in hell though. You understand that. The conscience is the worm that eats and never devours. The Puritan said that is the guilty conscience. If you're not a Christian today, one of the terrors of hell would be the conscience that will testify to you of every prayer of a loved one, every gospel call, every sermon that you heard, and for all eternity, your conscience will condemn you for saying no to God's gracious call of the gospel. And that is the reality. What he expresses here is the reality of hell. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you need to understand that it is the reality of your life. Well, having described the fear, he then describes the fate of the wicked in this life. Notice 25 begins with the verse, because. He's going to relate now that which he has said and that which he will say to the character of the wicked. He has stretched out his hand against God, conducts himself arrogantly against the Almighty. He rushes headlong at him with his massive shield, for he's covered his face with his fat and made his thighs heavy with flesh. So now the wicked, he says, is in war against God. He has stretched his face, his fist in the hand of God. He's lifted up his sword uh, against God. Notice that he refers to God as the Almighty, Shaddai, showing here the folly and futility of fighting against God. But that's what the wicked does. Now, so many, and the, and the language here is military language, uh, lifts the hand with the sword, rushes headlong uh, against him with, with a stiff neck, a massive shield, the great battle shield uh, with which one would protect himself. And with a sense of of uh, invincibility. He's covered his face with fat, made his thighs heavy with flesh. Not so much that he is physically fat, but he's made himself secure in all of his prosperity and blessings and positions. Now, most would never say, oh, I'm going to fight against God. Most recognize the awful futility of fighting against God. Although I read this week that uh, David Crosby, the last tweet that he tweeted, is that a verb? Uh, the last tweet that he sent was, I'm not sure heaven's such a great place. Well, he was going to find out just the opposite of that thing that he blasphemed. So he was more consciously fighting against God, but every time you refuse to obey God, every time you harden your heart against the call of the gospel, every time you boys and girls think 
well, I know that I should repent. I know that I should be trusting Christ. But I've got my whole life in front of me. I don't need to do it today. When you think that, my young friends, you are fighting against God. Who says today is the day of repentance. Not next year. Not ten years from now. So on the one hand, you would never imagine lifting your fist in the face of God. But every time any of us put off repentance and faith, we're doing exactly that which Eliphaz illustrates here. And so the wicked is fighting against God. And in this, he's implying this is what Job is doing, you see. That Job is the one who's been secure in his prosperity, in his abundance, has lifted his fist in the face of God. But notice now the fate of the wicked in this life. Now here, Eliphaz is trying to answer Job's argument. Job has said, in this life, the wicked don't always suffer. And Eliphaz says, well, maybe not immediately, but the wicked are going to suffer in their estate, in the circumstances of their life, in their health, in this present life. And so he refers to the wicked now, their faith, they live in desolation, desolate cities and houses no one would habit. We sang in Psalm 44 of the people living in places of destruction, destined to become ruins. This is the destiny. Now Job's lost his property. His son's house has been destroyed. Uh, he is living now in desolation, although for a period of time he enjoyed the smile of God. It's perhaps in that period of time that he committed his gross sins. He will not become rich. He cannot go into riches. And if he's been rich, his wealth will not endure. The idea of the grain will not bend to the ground. His possessions will no longer be full and, and covering like heavy wheat that falls to the ground. He'll not escape the darkness of death and judgment. God's flame will shoot up the branches and um, the breath of God will destroy him in this life. And so do not let the wicked trust in emptiness, deceiving himself that uh, all is well between me and God because emptiness or vanity will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time. He's going to die and suffer prematurely. So his palm branch will not be green. Palm was a sign of long-lived life. His palm branch will not be green. In fact, he's going to uh, drop off his unripe grapes, like a vine that loses its grapes before they're ripe, cast off the flower of the olive tree before it has turned to fruit. Because the company, notice the word for, the company of the godless. Now that's interesting. The first word is congregation. Godless is a singular term. The company, the congregation of the godless one is corrupt. Is barren. Fire consumes the tents of the corrupt. He's talking now about the destruction of Job's household, his children, his servants, his slave, his property. And here is the first invented sin now against Job when it says fire consumes the tents of the corrupt. Uh, the word is literally the bribers. Bribery. So obviously... Job's property is being consumed because Job had practiced bribery. And then this great spiritual principle in verse 35. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity and their mind prepares deception. 
Now, this is very true. Eliphaz has said it earlier in, in chapter 4. It's repeated um, uh, in Proverbs and the Psalms and masterful allusion to it in James uh, where uh, James deals with this very reality. And he says that in verse 14 of chapter 1, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's really what Eliphaz is saying here. Is that if you sow sin, you're going to uh, practice sin, and the practice of sin is going to lead to death. Now that is true. But that's not the only reason that people suffer. And that's where he goes astray, you see. So he's taken biblical truth about the terrors of conscience. Biblical truth uh, about the, the facts of what God in this life does at times to the wicked. But we know it's not always true. We all know the stories of many wicked, like, as far as you know, David Crosby. He died with a peaceful conscience. He could boast uh, the day before his death. Uh, and many like that have died with great riches. Their riches were not destroyed. Their, their families have continued on generation after generation. And so he has grossly generalized a biblical truth that in this life, God will exercise retributive justice against the wicked. But not always in this life. But the thing to realize, always in hell, God will exercise retributive justice. So we need to also watch out for this particular ploy of twisting Scripture. People take a, a verse or a passage out of context and twist it around to suit their purposes. And so, um, and I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones saying this, if you teach properly justification by faith alone, you'll be accused on the one hand of lawlessness, antinomianism, the other hand of being a legalist. And that's what teaching truth will do. It expose us to those who will twist the truth of Scripture. And so we see this in the health, wealth, and prosperity people. As they take verses out of the Bible about how God blesses the righteous and generalizes that, that if you are righteous, you will have God's blessing. If you suffer, it's because you don't have faith or because you are a sinner. They've taken a snippet of truth God does delight in blessing his people. Uh, the Apostle John prays for his friend Gaius that he'll prosper in his soul as he does in his estate. But it's not a universal truth. Or those who argue that justification must be by faith and works. And so they'll take a passage like James or a passage that relates that, yes, if we are justified, we're going to obey God. And they twist it to teach the other. Now we need to be careful that we don't do that ourselves. It's very easy to approach the Bible with a preconceived notion. And then you want to make those verses agree with your preconceived notion. It's very important to be aware of this. It's important for young preachers or men that will be preachers. It's, it's tempting uh, to approach Scripture, uh, a certain passage, and, and, and you know this is what that passage means and it's proven your point. And you've studied the passage, it doesn't make your point. Now then, what do you do? I remember one time, it was the Lord's Day afternoon, and I was in California. I'm actually in a memorial service. And I'm meditating on my and I realized, Piper, you've missed the whole thing. You cannot go up there and preach that text as you have planned. 
Now, I can say this by God's grace. I've never knowingly misinterpreted or mispreached a text, as since I haven't done it, but never did it deliberately. And that must be a resolve that we as preachers have, that you men who will be preachers, that elders in the church must have. And even as you study the Bible and you've got a particular philosophy of life, don't go to any passage of Scripture that you know this is true and know this passage seems to contradict what you're thinking. Well, I must be right. And then you will explain away the passage and you'll twist it. Always approach the Bible with that great interpretive principle of the analogy of Scripture. Compare Scripture with Scripture. Plead with the Holy Spirit to open to your mind what God has said there. Otherwise, we can be just as guilty as Eliphaz or modern-day proponents of error in twisting the Word of God. And so the Holy Spirit, in this portion of wisdom literature, teaches us tactics of those who teach error. They'll argue ad hominem. They'll twist Scripture to prove their point. But all the day, you see, it is a bad conclusion about God's retributive justice. And you need to be aware that you don't come to bad conclusions about God's retributive justice. God does not exercise justice against any of his children. He'll punish you. He might be, as a father, angry with you, but you will never feel the weight of the justice of God coming down upon you. And you know why, don't you? Because the whole weight of God's justice came down on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's called the propitiation, uh, the wrath satisfying death, sacrifice of our Savior. So you're delivered from that. Now, you're going to suffer. And sometimes you're not going to know why you suffer. But don't jump to the conclusion, ever, that it's God's retributive justice in your life. Now, you examine yourself. Am I being disciplined for something? But if you come to the conclusion that you're not, then you, you seek God's grace and, and God's wisdom and God's patience. And dealing with that. But also let us not be like Eliphaz and Bildad and so far. Jump to conclusions about others. When there's no evidence. And so there's a family that's really suffering. Most of their children have, have gone off the reservation. Uh, and we have no grounds to think that's any fault with the parents. But we say, boy, they must have really messed up raising their children. Or you look at a church that is just not being blessed. Well, they must be doing something wrong. You see, God's sovereign. He wants us always to bow before His sovereignty. It's a gracious sovereignty, but He's sovereign. And so, as the Scripture tells us, we do not judge. We don't hold people accountable. Only God has the right to do that. Now, if there's clear evidence that sin is there and the church is misbehaving and misbelieving, that's different. But just to jump to the conclusion about retributive justice. But then understand there is going to be retributive justice in hell for all eternity. And that's God's warning to each one of us to flee the wrath of God. To take hold of Jesus Christ while it is yet time. Because the worst descriptions that men like Eliphaz can give us in all of their eloquence are nothing compared to the reality of hell. Terror and darkness and the gnawing of a conscience Dwelling in a destitute habitation. Hopeless. 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 And so if this morning 
if you're not sure that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone, young or old, right now is the time to be sure that yes, I'm repenting of my sins and I'm resting in Christ Jesus for my salvation. Let us pray. Holy God, we thank you for this uh, dark passage that in many ways presents for us difficulties and yet we pray that the Spirit's given us light and that from this light we will greatly profit both in terms of understanding the tactics of the evil one and of the evil people that we'll avoid those things in our own lives but also, Lord, that we will have clear views about retributive justice that's been satisfied for us in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.